Well, good morning, Veritas. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to continue our Advent series on joy this morning. But before we do that, um, we've got a, a bunch of seats out this morning because of the baptismal. And so if you could just move into the center of your row just to leave some space on the edges of the aisles for people that are coming in to sit down. That would be a, a, a big help this morning um, since we're down on seats. I have to tell you guys, um, we were um, in my own connection group this past week and um, just finishing up our discussion and some of the people in the group asked what was to come in this series. And I said, well, you know, Jeff led us off with joy despite hardship. I'm going to pick us up with joy despite guilt. And then Mark's going to finish us off with guilt, uh, joy despite death. And I looked around at the, the faces on the people in my connection group, you know, kind of sunken faces, kind of this like, huh, like depression. Like, isn't this supposed to be the time of the year where there's like more excitement in the air, hardship, guilt, death? And I was like, I get what you're feeling, guys, but I said, consider this. I said, if you only look at joy against the backdrop of when everything seems to be going right in your life, it's really hard to fight for and maintain joy when things seem to be going wrong in your life. So we need to look at this series sort of through, through that lens as well, because this is an anticipatory time of the year, right? We say, like, we should be anticipating, right? the coming birth of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the birth. There's a greater anticipation in that, and that's that all of these things that tend to steal our joy, like hardship, guilt, and death, um, like injustice, like oppression, like suffering, it's this anticipation that one day all of those things will be completely done away with by the redeeming work of the one whose birthday we will celebrate. And, and so let's look at this series with not just anticipation for Christmas, but anticipation of our future hope as well. And, and so we're, we're gonna take a look at how we can have joy despite guilt, and, and really we're gonna kinda do an investigation into guilt and, and look into four things. First, the reality of guilt. Um, second, the purpose of guilt. Third, the responses to guilt. There's a lot of different ways we can respond to it. There's really one right way. We'll look into that. And then what is God's intended outcome of guilt? So to start with, um, reality of guilt. Um, I, I can still remember when I was a little boy growing up, the most terrifying feeling in the entire world. And, and a lot of you guys are going to be able to relate to this in a couple seconds here. But he, here's the situation. Um, th this feeling, it's, it's called the weight, by the way, the weight. And the situation is you've disobeyed mom in a very serious way, right? And what's her response? Her response is, I'm not even going to deal with it. We'll wait till your father gets home and he can deal with it, right? And then you just wait, right? It's the most miserable feeling in the world. As a little boy, you don't want to go back to playing with your toys because you're just paralyzed by this feeling of wanting to throw up because you know darn well the wrath that dad's going to bring, far worse than anything mom would bring right? So you're just waiting, and it, it stinks. I mean, it is the most miserable feeling in the world. You get this pit in your stomach, right? You just can't do anything. But, but what causes that? Why do you feel that way? Well, you know you're guilty, right? If you hadn't done anything wrong to mom, you wouldn't feel that way, right? If you were innocent, you wouldn't feel that feeling of guilt inside of you, and it's that feeling that testifies to the fact that you did something wrong. You're guilty of a crime. And so this first thing we need to know today is that 
Every single human being has to deal with guilt. Every single human being has to deal with guilt. And how we deal with it is extremely important. This is sort of the natural state of every human being when they're born into the world. Paul talks about this in Romans, and you don't have to go there. I'll read the verses. But in Romans 1, Paul says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So Paul is saying there's, there's sort of this natural disposition, there's this natural inclination to people when they're born into this world to reject God, right? How does he say we reject God? Well, we don't acknowledge that he is the holy and powerful creator of the universe. And he goes on in Romans 3 to kind of complete this thought. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. And then if you hop to verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's saying, listen, God's commandments show us that we're guilty. You just, just look inside of his word, look inside of his law, and it'll show you that you're guilty. When he says the law sort of functions to, to shut our mouths, he's saying, stop talking about how perfectly you follow God's law. Stop talking about how righteous your deeds are and how many good works you do. Look, just look at the law. It proves that that's not true. We all fall short of God's standards. So uh, it, it's important up front here that we define explicitly what guilt is. So we have some clarity going forward. So Jake went to Webster's last week to define joy, and it didn't work out very well for him. I went to Webster's to define guilt, and it actually is a decent definition. What Webster says is, guilt is that which is incurred when we violate a standard. Okay, that which is incurred when we violate a standard. Okay, so what do we incur before God? Well, we incur a debt that we can't repay, right? We've offended God by violating his holy standard of righteousness. That's the standard that we, we don't meet. He requires perfection. We can't produce it. And more than that, there's this massive gulf between us and God. It's not just that we're pretty good people and he's a little bit better than us, right? He is a perfectly holy God and we are completely sinful in our nature. And we, we can't close that gap ourselves. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 and 2 and 3. This is just an objective guilt, right? It's a spiritual reality. Every human being stands guilty before God. Here's the good news. If you're united to Christ by faith, that guilt is forever done away with, okay? The moment you put faith in Jesus Christ, God looks at you, he slams his gavel down, and he says, not guilty, right? The debt was paid through Jesus Christ for that objective guilt. That's forever done away with. You never have to deal with that again if you are a believer in Christ. But as we know, there's also a subjective guilt, right? This kind of feeling deep inside of us, like the one I talked about earlier when I was waiting for my dad to get home. We all have to f deal with that one. And guys, if we don't deal with that guilt, it's going to absolutely cripple 
our joy. Every single one of us has experienced that. So the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with that guilt? Maybe another way of, of asking that question is, how can I live with myself? Some of you guys have probably felt that before after you've committed a sin that you know just grieves God's heart. How can I ever live with myself after what I've done? Well, we're going to take a look at a passage from Nehemiah to fill in our investigation into guilt today. We're going to answer that question. How can you live with yourself? A um, little bit of context first before we jump into it. If you have your Bibles, turn to, to Nehemiah 8. We'll have the verses on the screen if you need those. But a little context as we enter this book. So the books of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, they're, they're really considered kind of one unit because they tell the story of the same period of time in Israel's history. And what it tells is that the story of the Babylonians coming and conquering Jerusalem, destroying the temple in about the mid-6th century B.C., and they take a bunch of the Israelites back with them to Babylon, to their homeland. And that's called the exile, right? The Israelites are exiled from their homeland. They're brought out of their homeland to a foreign country. And so these two books, they pick up the story about 50 years later when a bunch of these Israelites are going back to Israel. Okay, the exile's over with, and they're going back to their homeland to rebuild their city, um, kind of rebuild their lives. And there's three key leaders in this, this story during this time. One is Zerubbabel, and he leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then there's Ezra, okay, after whom the book is named. Um, about 60 years later, he arrives into Jerusalem to teach the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, and to help rebuild the community. And then there's Nehemiah, who we're going to look at today. And you probably know this story, one of the more famous Old Testament stories. He goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick up the story in Nehemiah 8. And what we have when we enter the scene here is Nehemiah and Ezra sort of join forces to start bringing about spiritual renewal to the Israelite people. And, and as we're going to see, this is going to involve reading the Torah or those first five books of the Old Testament in public to the Israelites. It's going to involve celebrating a holy day called the Feast of Booths that was meant to help remember God's past faithfulness. Um, they confess sin as part of it, and they're sort of recommitted to following God's law as part of it. So let's read Nehemiah 8. We're going to read the first eight verses um, to start out here. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. So they take the initiative here, the Israelites, they ask for the law to be read to them. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. So he just means... Children of age to be able to understand, and then all the adults are here listening to the law. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Okay, so some of you guys think Mark preaches long sermons, right? Guys, this is six hours that these Israelites are listening to the word of God read to them, okay? So no more complaining about Mark's sermons. He's not here today. We can say that, okay? Um, if he goes 40 minutes, it's, it's less than six hours, okay? But, but listen to that. Nehemiah says they stood for six hours, but they listened attentively. 
right? They had a heart to understand God's word. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashbadna, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So there's a certain sort of respect and reverence that these people have for the Word of God, right? As Jeff often has us do, they stood for the Word of God. Toward the end of these verses, you see that they worship, right? Kind of a sign of humility and submission before the Word of God. And and when they say, amen, amen, they haven't even heard it spoken yet, but, but going into the Word of God, their heart is in such a posture that they're saying, we already believe this is true and we're gonna seek to submit to it. Verse seven. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hadiah, Masiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, who were the Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Okay, so these people clearly have hearts that are in a posture ready to receive God's word, right? First, they're the ones that initiate this process. They ask for it to be read to them. And they understand how long the first five books of the Old Testament are. They understand this is gonna be a long time. But notice he said they listened attentively, right? They They were trying to understand. They were showing reverence. They were showing respect for the word of God. And then look at verse nine. Look what happens in verse nine. You probably wouldn't expect this turn in the story. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Why this response from the Israelites? Probably not the response you expected. Well, here's the second thing we need to know today. The purpose of guilt is to alert you to a problem with your soul, okay? The purpose of guilt is to alert you to a problem with your soul. Why did the Israelites respond by weeping and mourning? Because the word of God can and it should bring a deep conviction of our sin. They wept to think how they had offended God by their just repeated violations of God's law. They saw themselves as guilty before God, and so their response is weeping and mourning. Guys, whenever we use the Bible as kind of our lens of self-reflection, as a mirror to look into, and we should do that a lot, it's going to expose us, right? It's going to expose what's in our heart. What does it mean to expose something? Well, maybe to, to reveal the true nature of something, or to reveal something by uncovering it? What was revealed? What was uncovered? It was their sin. And and often the result of that is a feeling of guilt, right? The last time I was up here, I I, I told you guys about um, a a time in my life when God was disciplining me amidst my, my idol of powerlifting. 
and that I'd sustained an elbow injury, um, had to give up the sport, and, and I didn't take too kindly to God's discipline in that time. I questioned him, I was mad at him, I doubted him, um, and I can remember so clearly, it, it was a Friday morning sitting at my kitchen table at, at this time, and I was just doing my daily devotion. I was, happened to be in the, in the book of Proverbs at the time, and I came across this verse, Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. And as soon as I read that verse, I felt like I got punched in my stomach. And it was one of those times where you feel like God is speaking out loud to you. Brian, that's what you're doing to me right now. And I thought, you know, my immediate reaction is, Okay, God, you can't be right. This has to be wrong. I mean, you guys have to understand that the most important people, the closest people into my, my life, my wife, uh, my boss, my best friends, um, my professors, they all tell me, you're the most teachable person I know, Brian. You're the most teachable person I know. So I thought, God, you have to be wrong here. You're just, you're, you're not right. Something's got to be amiss. I said, that's not me, God. But it was me, and it still is me. I'm working my way out of that because when you look inside the Word of God, it's going to reveal exactly what's inside of you. Okay? When you look inside the Word of God, as I did in Proverbs, it's going to reveal exactly what's inside of you. And immediately after reading that verse, a huge wave of guilt across my whole body right? My mind, my soul, because God wanted to teach me and I wasn't having any of it. Now know this, guys. Guilt is intended by God to be a very good thing for us. Okay, guilt is intended by God to be a very good thing. It's a very spiritually healthy thing. God's word should wound us like it did the Israelites when Ezra read the law to them. You know, Paul says in 2 Timothy, God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, okay? Those things can expose some flaws in us and that can be really painful, if not just to our egos, right? And that pain that we feel, like it was for the Israelites, it's so often a sign that our hearts are tender, right? We're we're not desensitized to the sting of sin in our lives. And guilt is what kind of alerts us to that, right? It's, it's our conscience that is so intimately tied to our guilt. This, sort of this internal alarm system that goes off and says, that's not what your soul was made for. Paul even talks about this back at the beginning of Romans where we were before. He says, you know, the Jews, well, they have God's word, right? They had the Old Testament. So all they had to do was read in God's word and They knew what was right or wrong. They knew whether what they were doing was right or wrong. He says, but the Gentiles, remember this is back in first century, they didn't have the Bible with them. They didn't have the Old Testament. But Paul says, you know what? They still know when they do right or wrong. And you know why? He says, because their conscience tells them. Right? The law is written on our hearts. So our conscience, that internal alarm system goes off and it signals guilt to give us this really crummy feeling inside of us, right? Saying, that's not what your soul was made for, right? Make a U-turn. 
So guys, guilt and even some of the feelings that come along with it. This is going to be hard for some of you, but even some of the feelings that come along with guilt, okay, are good for us. Have you ever felt a feeling of unworthiness after you sinned? An unworthiness to have intimacy with God. That can be a really good thing. Because people that feel worthy have no need to go to God for grace. Okay? Have you ever felt shame after a sin? I know I have. That can be a really good thing for you because what does shame do? Well, it points you to Jesus to be healed of that shame. Right? Now, as I said earlier, I alluded to, we have to exercise some caution, right? Not all guilt is good, and we're going to see how bad guilt can kind of show up in our lives. But, but the second thing that we need to take caution in regards to is even the good guilt that we experience, it's only good if you respond to it in the right way. Okay, so let, let's, let's go to that next. Let, let's look at the response to guilt. Okay, there's a number of different ways we can respond to it. Let, let's, I had Mitchell make a, a chart for us. Susie, why don't you put up that first one? So here's the first way we can respond to guilt. Put up that first one, Susie, if you would. Okay, so first way we can respond to guilt, we can suppress it, right? Or just maybe ignore it, right? You kind of pretend it, it, it never happened, right? Maybe you justify it, right? Or minimize it. Well, it wasn't that bad what I did. I mean, look at what that person did, right? Well, this isn't the worst sin anybody's ever committed, justify it, or we just flat out try to ignore it, pretend it didn't even happen. But here's the thing, when we recoil against guilt, there's no heart change that takes place. Our heart's not transformed. And if we do this enough, if we just ignore that feeling of guilt in us enough, we get a calloused heart, right? We get a calloused heart. If anybody here works with your hands a lot, I work out so I have calluses on my hands, you could stick a needle through those calluses and I wouldn't feel a thing. And that's what happens with calluses, right? If your heart gets calloused over because you suppress guilt or you ignore it enough, you don't feel the sting of sin. You don't know when you've done right or wrong. And that's not a good place to be, guys. That's not a good place to be. Now, of course, this one doesn't produce any joy when we suppress guilt, right? You ignore the very thing that's supposed to point you toward the joy, right? Part of the reason we experience guilt is not just to say there's something wrong with your soul, but follow it through. It's to point you to Jesus Christ, to be healed of it and forgiven of it. And if you ignore the very thing that, that's that big arrow pointing to Christ, then there's no joy in it. Okay, let's put that second one up there. So there's a couple ways that we, we experience self-centered sorrow. Okay, let's look at the first one. So this first one, you feel guilt and you feel bad for your sin, but you, you feel bad for the wrong reasons, right? Uh, the, the sin or the guilt that comes along with it, it, it's exposed a chink in your moral armor. And quite frankly, that offends you. Right, that you couldn't maintain this veneer of perfection. You try so hard, and guys, you've been there, I've been there before, you try so hard over and over and over again to build up this image of moral perfection for everybody around you to see. 
and over and over and over again, you realize that that's impossible. And that brings despair a lot of times. But it also produces pride, right? Because you realize time and time again, well, I can't create, I can't sculpt together myself the perfection that God needs. So what am I going to do? Well, although I can't reach God's perfect standard, I can make myself look better than that person. My sin's not as bad as theirs. Look at all the flaws in their heart. We, we, we minimize our own flaws and our sins. We cover them up and we try to expose everybody else's to make ourselves look good. That's a really prideful heart. And of course, this one doesn't produce any joy either. Because in making the situation about you, you totally sap the gospel of its power to produce joy. The gospel isn't primarily about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And when we make the situation about us, the gospel loses its power. So the second way self-centered sorrow shows up in our lives. Well, it, it, this one's still rooted in pride, right? In this case, we're too prideful to go to God and receive forgiveness. So what do we do? We just sit in our sin. We sit in that guilt too long, right? Maybe you see your sin is, is so bad that you, you can't possibly go to God with it. it. You know, he would never accept you after what you've done, right? So you just sit in your sin, and if you do that long enough, you give up hope of reconciliation with God. And this is, guys, this is the first way that bad guilt shows up in our lives. This guilt is not good, so take note of this. This is what it looks like. We sit in our sorrow for too long. Okay, the purpose of guilt is it's to expose a problem in your soul, like we said, but then also to drive you to Jesus Christ. Beyond that, if we sit in guilt beyond that, it can be very damaging to our hearts because it produces self-condemnation. Notice, I don't say condemnation because Paul says in Romans 8.1 that if you're united to Christ by faith, there is no condemnation for you. You will never, ever, 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 ever experience that if you are in Christ. But, but what's condemnation? Well, it's a, essentially a death sentence, right? So, so we kind of portray or bring upon ourselves a death sentence, right? We pronounce ourselves guilty of death ourselves. You think your sin's unforgivable. But there's good news. There, there is no unforgivable sin if you are in Christ, okay? Jesus points out one unforgivable sin in the Bible. He says, slandering the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. There's great news though. God protects every single believer for all time from ever committing that sin. So if you're in Christ, there is no unforgivable sin. Not one single sin that you've ever committed or ever will is unforgivable. Okay, so staying on this one, second way bad guilt shows up, okay? So first one, you kind of, you just sit in it way too long. Okay, you don't allow it to lead you to Christ. But second way, sometimes, you know, um, we, we have guilty feelings and self-condemnation results from stuff that isn't even a sin, guys. Right? We want to condemn ourselves for not being ultra consistent in our Bible reading plans. Or we want to condemn ourselves for not being the perfect parent. Or whatever the case may be. 
So let me give you this counsel in that case, and this is an imperfect solution, but it's a start. If, if you're feeling um, self-condemnation from guilt and you're not even sure what you did wrong, try to track your guilt back to a very specific violation of God's law. Okay, now I realize that's imperfect because our hearts are deceitful, okay? That's not always gonna work out. But if you're experiencing self-condemnation, self-condemnation is always wrong, by the way, always wrong. But if you're feeling guilt and you're not, you're not even sure what you did wrong, or you're not even sure if it's a, if it's a healthy guilt, I mean, a guilt that produces self-condemnation is never healthy, track it back to a very specific violation of God's law. And if you can't do that, then cast that guilt away. Cast it away, okay? You, you don't want anything to do with that. Now here, here, of course, no joy is the result either. Why? Because you're only living out half of the gospel, right? Half of the gospel says you are more sinned and you are more flawed than you ever could dare imagine, right? Well, you've got that half of it down, right? That's why you feel self-condemned. You've only got that half of it down. But the other half of the gospel says, in spite of you being more flawed in sin than you could ever dare imagine, you are more loved and accepted by God than you could ever dare hope for. You got to live out the whole gospel, guys. Don't just sit in the first half of it. That's not the gospel. Self-condemnation is a weapon of Satan. It is not a gift from God. Living out the whole gospel is the only right way to respond. So, so let's look at this next. Susie, you don't have to put the, the last one up there yet. Let's look at God's intended outcome of guilt. Let's finish up this short passage in Nehemiah and read verses 10 through 12. Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So very quickly, the Israelites' weeping and mourning is turned into joy. But why? Or how? Well, Nehemiah says, Because they had understood the words that were explained to them. Veritas, the better you understand the word of God, the more comfort you will find in it. Okay, the better you understand the word of God, the more comfort you will find in it. What exactly was it that the Israelites understood? Well, it was certainly at least one of the precious promises of God that he made to those who repented and turned from their sin. Now, it had to be in the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Because that's what Ezra's reading. So what, what, what might they have heard that morning or that afternoon? What if it was Exodus 34? The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Guys, what words of hope those would have been to the Israelites after they had been so strongly convicted of their sin. What promise of God do you maybe need to hear this morning? Maybe Psalm 86, 5. For you, Lord, 
are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Maybe 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That godly sorrow that the Israelites felt when their sin was exposed, it quickly led to a repentant heart. And that's why Nehemiah says that they were commanded to stop weeping. He's like, guys, this is a holy day of celebration. It's not a time for mourning. They had clearly seen their sin. They were genuinely sorry for it. They repented of it, which always leads to forgiveness. And now Nehemiah is saying, guys, get over it. It's over with. Put it in your past. Because understand this, Veritas, even that, that godly sorrow that you experience, it can't be so excessive that it prevents you from experiencing God's joy. You can't sit in that too long. Put, put the last one up, if you would, Susie. Finish out this chart. So godly sorrow, the kind that the Israelites had. You're genuinely crushed over your sin for grieving God with it. You feel bad, and you feel bad for the right reasons. And I got news for you. God's word says that godly sorrow always leads to repentance. You have a strong desire in your heart to turn away from that sin, to turn to God in obedience. And guess what? That kind of repentance, it always leads to forgiveness. And not only are you not punished for your sins, but your sins are forever wiped away and your relationship with God is made whole again. Because let, let's, let's be clear about this. Sometimes we use the language of, let's see, will God ever accept me back? Okay, that's the wrong language, okay? If you're a Christian and you sin, you can't possibly fall out of God's love. But what does happen when you sin is, there's a break in your relationship with God. I mean, sin grieves God's heart and it should grieve our heart. And that's why we need to repent and ask forgiveness. It makes that relationship whole again. And like Jake said last week, our pursuit of joy is our pursuit of God. So if that relationship isn't whole, our pursuit of joy is gonna be something less than what it should be. And this is, guys, this one, obviously this one produces joy unspeakable joy. Like Jake said, this isn't some joy attached to like circumstances of your life or some material thing in your life, but it's happiness in the goodness of God that comes to you time and time again through his grace. I haven't told many, many people this in this room. There's probably maybe a handful of people in this room that know this, but the first time I was in seminary, I cheated on a theology exam. <laughs> I hear the rumblings out there. I know, like a pastor cheating on a theology exam. Does it get worse than that? I think it does, but maybe not much worse. But this wave of guilt passed over me, and my, my immediate response was to try to suppress it. And guys, everything I did, I mean, I'd be eating dinner with my wife, I'd be driving to work, and I just felt like I was going to throw up. And, and I thought this was the unforgivable sin. Like, I'll certainly be fired for this. There's no way people will forgive me for this. But that feeling of guilt never went away, so I tried to justify it. I, I said, well, I only cheated on one question. I still would have got a pretty good grade on it. Like, is it that big of a deal? Guilt still wouldn't go away. So I did one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And first I called my wife aside, then Mark, my boss, confessed to them. Then I drove to Ames, because Jeff was my teacher, I confessed to him. And guys, the grace that God gave me through that, it, it just, 
it led to a joy you can't even describe. When you think you've offended God in a way that is just beyond pardon, and he just dumps his grace out on you, um, it's, it's amazing. You know, earlier we asked, how can we live with ourselves? Well, ask God for forgiveness and receive his forgiveness. We, we all long for this acceptance and unconditional love of our Heavenly Father, and you feel that the greatest in the midst of your disgusting sin, and you receive God's grace on top of that. That's when you feel it the greatest, and that's why Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is gonna become your strength in verse 10. You better believe I was tempted to cheat the next time I took a test in that class. But the joy of receiving grace and forgiveness the first time was my strength to resist Satan the second time. The joy of the Lord is your strength to not give up in the face of guilt, to not give in to self-condemnation. The joy of the Lord is your strength to obey God. The joy of the Lord is your strength to resist the devil when he tempts you. I think the key for us, Veritas, is to be a joyfully discontent people. Fight sin with everything you've got because your fight for sin, it clears the path for joy, okay? It clears the path for joy. Let guilt do its job, but then be done with it. Make sure the destination of your guilt is always the cross. Let it drive you to Christ time and time and time again. And, and each time you sit at Christ's feet with that guilt weighing down in you, receive his forgiveness over and over and over again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you don't, you don't just leave us in our sin. Every single one of us, at least before we knew you, we rebelled against you. And, and, and we wanted to, to live a life in line with the own sinful desires of our heart, but you didn't leave us in that. You, one, you gave us this thing called guilt. You gave us a conscience. You wrote your own law on our hearts to tell us, that's not what I made your soul for. Turn away from that. And so we thank you for that, God. That's grace in itself. And I, I ask you, God, right now, just first, help us be sensitive to the sting of sin in our life, God. Help our hearts not be turned off to that guilt, but help us to respond to it by letting us drive us to Jesus Christ time and time again. And would you give us hearts humble enough to receive that grace and that forgiveness time and time again. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.